0: Changshan production curves, how they impact freight rates, and a high sulfur east-west contract that just won't stop. All this and more on Freight Up. Hello and welcome to Freight Up. My name is Fernanda and I'll be your host as we navigate the seas of freight and commodities. Today's episode is packed with various superstars. We have Joshua Stern reporting to you on steel, James Robinson talking about iron ore, and how pay back from a short hiatus with an overall analysis of the Ferris complex. We'll also have a voice that you haven't heard in a while, but you've definitely missed. Taylor Eastman, our head of fertilizer, brings you a recap on what Q2 had in store for us and discusses why you may need fertilizer options. And for our fuel oil fanatics, do not fret, Archie Smith is here with the latest on the fuel oil market, along with a freight update from Carrie Deal. Now let's get into it. up, Let's talk about fuel oil with Archie Smith. All right, Archie. Hello. The the people's fuel oil broker. How are you (laughs) doing?
1: (laughs) I'm brilliant, thank you. How are
0: you? I'm doing great. But I'm really dying to know what's going on with crude because that's all that's happening on the uh, FIS WhatsApp.
1: On Monday, there was another OPEC meeting in Vienna and Saudi Arabia decided to further their voluntary cuts into August. So their initial plan when they met early June was that they would cut their oil output by 1 million barrels per day into July. They've now extended that July into August as well, as well as a kind of push from Saudi to Russia to to start cutting as well. And, and, And Russia have... Said they're going to cut exports by 500,000 barrels per day. So that happened on Monday. You know, it, it's kind of the same old story, really. It offers that kind of short-term support to the price. You know, literally on the announcement of the news, we see the Brent crude futures ticking up. But yeah, yet again, you know, these OPEC cuts have, have failed to boost prices for more than a few hours. We've kind of shed those losses again, as we have seen with the previous OPEC cuts throughout this year. Oh it's and a I think, very short-lived effect. Yes, yeah, they are very short-lived. And there's a few kind of reasons for that. You know, there's a few reasons why these, uh, these OPEC announcements and these OPEC cuts are failing to support the markets. And that's, I think, you know, the main overarching point is just weak demand outlook. Everyone's worried about the second half of the year, the demand in the second half of the year. Chinese PMI figures came out yesterday and they were weaker than expected. Demand is sluggish in Europe. Factory manufacturing levels have been weaker in, in China. So, all, you know, all the data is really kind of leading to this, this weak demand outlook. And that's kind of the main overarching point why oil has been shedding. As well as that, you've got the high interest rates all over the globe. And another one is actually U.S. output has been skyrocketing. Oh, wow. They've really kind of stepped up to the plate, the U.S. in the absence of the Russian market. They're looking, I think they're on, they're on track, the US, to climb 720,000 barrels per day in output this year, which wow. is pretty sizable. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously basic supply and demand, more US supply flooding into the market. It's that th- those prices are coming off. But I think that's definitely more of a kind of minor point that can sit under the, the points I was on about earlier, the high interest rates and the, and the just poor demand outlook.
0: But it's definitely
1: something to consider.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of stoking the lack of fire. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So crude's got a lot going on, but high sulfur has been equally active. What's going on there?
1: Well, I mean, the, the high sulfur east-west, firstly, has been absolutely all over the place. The Augie contract, which is the front month contract, that was trading $6 per metric ton. But last uh, only last week, that was at minus $8 per metric ton. You know, so that's like a $15 swing. Within a week, it's been absolutely all over the place. I think it was, it was so weak last week because there was a lot of, there was a lot of cargoes going into Singapore and there was less Chinese feedstock demand for the, for the high sulfur fuel oil because the Chinese government implemented more crude oil importing quotas and with more crude oil importing quotas the refiners, you know, high sulfur fuel oil is a, is a byproduct of refining crude oil. So, you know, if China's importing more crude, they're going to be producing more high sulfur fuel oil as a byproduct. And therefore there's less demand in China for that to import that Singapore high sulfur fuel oil as refinery feedstock. So that's why we really kind of saw it come off last week. And then it's it's rallied again in kind of beginning of this week, because there's, there's been quite a lot of buying in the 380 cracks in the market. And also, I mean, there's just kind of general high sulfur tightness, I think especially off of Russia's announcement on Monday about they was going to cut oil exports by 500,000 barrels, you know, they're a massive exporter of high sulfur fuel oil. So taking another 500,000 barrels out of the market naturally tightens that supply. But, you know, then there's the discussion that, okay, if Russia is taking away this 500,000 barrels export and also coming to the end of their refinery maintenance season, are they going to be producing domestically more high-sulfur fuel oil? And then that finds its way back into the market elsewhere. You know that, that, As we've a, seen. As <laughs> we've seen. That's you know, a discussion that, that can be had. But the way the market's reflecting at the minute, it's definitely seeing is right, that's 500,000 barrels of fuel oil a day that's getting taken away from the market. Bit of tightness in supply. And that's why we've kind of seen these cracks really push. And hence, the, the high-sulfur east-west has, has rallied. I think, you know, it's, it's important to bear in mind that pretty much all of this Russian high sulfur fuel oil is going east. Mm. Hence that differential in the east-west.
0: Oh my gosh, so yeah. that's... Wow. There's like a whole story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like that that meme, you know, the math meme where yeah, you're just putting all it all together. From the hangover, yeah.
1: from the hangover. That's, yeah, 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 that's yeah, me yeah, I right that. now. I'm like,
0: wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is that having any effect on the... Just, come on. It's them on the high fives.
1: (laughs) I was wondering what you were doing then, and then it all made
2: sense. Yeah, hundred
1: percent, it is. So, taking the August, you know, the front month Singapore high five that has tightened over twenty five bucks in a week. Like I mentioned before, Sing three eighty crack is a lot stronger, and when that gets stronger, the high sulfur flat price gets stronger, bringing it kind of closer to that low sulfur Singapore price. Hence you know, tightening the difference and therefore the Singhai 5 is a lot weaker. It was around $102 per metric ton when I left to so the August contract and that was like 129 130 at this point last week or beginning of last week. So we've really seen some tightening there.
0: Okay, so unfortunately, we've come to the end of the Archie hour, which is tragic for all of us, Sad but do is. not worry. He'll be back next week. In the meantime... What should we be keeping an eye out for in the coming days?
1: I think all market participants or anyone with an interest in the fuel oil market should really keep an eye on the, the high sulfur east-west and the the Singapore high sulfur crack. You know, like I mentioned, it will be interesting to see how these Russian export cuts play out. The 500,000 barrels At the moment, it's very much saying, okay, this is 500,000 barrels less of high sulfur fuel oil that's going into the market, being injected into the market, but with Russian refinery season coming to an end and them keeping more of their domestic products because they're not exporting it, will that have the opposite effect of them producing more high sulfur fuel oil and then kind of injecting it elsewhere? So yeah, I think just definitely keep an eye on that high sulfur resource, especially with how much it's jumping about. You know, it's crazy
0: we definitely will i will be keeping yeah. an eye on that east west
1: brilliant that's good to hear
0: fantastic yeah you okay. can shout
1: me anytime where it's at and i'll let you know <laughs> yeah,
0: Fantastic! where's the high sulfur east west now oh fantastic! <laughs> look at this it's gonna be great and we'll bring you more archie on the next episode thank you brilliant. so much, thank you Arch. much great as always and now for a fertilizer update from our head of fertilizer taylor eastman hey taylor how you doing
3: doing
4: well excited to be here thank you for having me
0: so it's been a bit quiet in the FERCS market recently what's on the average trader's mind right now taylor
4: it has been quiet really i think as we're coming out of the spring season here as we end q2 it's really historically a reset time in the fertilizer markets right where um you have field programs coming out we've already seen the field programs come out in the united states for ammonia It's expected the fill program comes out in the next month for UAN and urea usually has a fill program. It's urea, not so much. So everyone's looking for just where fill comes out at, summer fill. It's an industry term that describes essentially producers lower their price so that it incentivizes buying and then hopefully then appreciation from then on out, a carry in the market. So really, we're in this limbo, I guess, between ending the spring season, ending Q2, going into Q3, and figuring out, okay, what's going to happen from this fill season? What's going to happen going into Q4? There's a lot of macro factors that we're paying attention to right now. Uh, obviously, the natural gas situation, Russian geopolitical tensions, and also where this grain market going. It's been incredibly volatile in the grain markets. All the traders are really looking at, okay, does corn prices hold in there? Do they even maybe appreciate? Could that be a catalyst to firmer fertilizer prices across the forward curve right now?
0: So it looks like traders have a lot on their mind. Could you, for the audience at home, give us a recap of Q2, the spring season?
4: Yeah. Spring season, I think, definitely wasn't as grim, I think, as, as some would probably have expected. In Q1 and in part of Q2, we did see prices, we have seen prices come, continue to come off from where we started at the beginning of the year. However, prices, once we got down around this $300 mark for FOB, Noli Urea, 200 $180 to $200 for UAN, and $450 or so, $440, $450 for DAP, it seems like prices have kind of been stabilized. And going back to what we discussed last time in the podcast, volatility has really come off. I think the last time we did this podcast, volatility year-to-date for 2023 on just urea was 42%. Now, I think that's probably dropped, I need to check my numbers, but by at least 10%. So we're expecting, or I think the trade is expecting that volatility continues to remain a little bit subdued compared to the beginning of the year. And I think that's really how the spring season played out, where prices just kind of, I mean, there was these $10, $20 moves in the market sometimes, but we just didn't see a very volatile spring like we have in 2021, 2022. So maybe a bit of a return to the norm, I guess, from these crazy past few years we've seen. And it was, I guess, the tone probably was prices remain relatively elevated compared to what some may have expected.
0: So given what we've covered thus far, what might Q3 and 4 have in store for us? What should we be looking out for?
4: good question so the macro factors are something to keep an eye on right the grains markets as i mentioned earlier the natural gas situation also this russia geopolitical tensions ukraine as well all things to be keeping an eye out for what's really moving the i think the market is going to be obviously the D going into the q3 q4 season for fertilizers in general so things like When's the next Indian tender for urea? How many tons are they expected to take? Does Brazil come in in a bigger way here in Q3? Do we see more demand than expected there? But also, too, things that the audience can think about at home is do natural gas prices get so high where production considers turning off in some parts of the world, like Europe, for ammonia? Also, grain prices. If grain prices, Rally from here, and we see high fives, maybe into sixes for corn. Does that push prices higher on fertilizer as well? So, the fall season is definitely, I think, in the past, more correlated to some of these macro factors, but also you can't ignore that, indeed, in D and fertilizers right now.
0: Wow, a lot to look forward to in the coming quarters. I hope you'll come back to give us updates on how that plays out. In the meantime, you've been working really hard to educate your industry on the opportunity that options present. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
4: Yes. With the help of our great comps team here at at FIS, we were able to (laughs) publish a, publish an article and fertilizer focus on. Options, the mechanics behind the options, of fertilizer options, and what we expect to see in the future for options, the options market, and I think that it's a, a very important piece that we hope to circulate to many of our clients. And right now, we continue to be in the education phase as they're a relatively new contract. The possibilities for options in the fertilizer markets are very promising, and we hope to speak to a lot more potential clients and existing clients about this at the Southwest Conference coming up in Denver that we're gonna be attending, which is in about two weeks time, July the 17th through the 19th. So if anybody's listening that wants to meet us at this conference, please feel free just to drop us a line at our email or on our company webpage. And we would love to meet and discuss options.
0: And we'll make sure to link Taylor's details down below. Why don't you give us a bit of a teaser? into the article and i have one very simple question for you why should i wherever i am in the fertilizer supply chain bother with options
4: the option highlights how you can use fertilizer options against your physical position so what i think is what all everyone in the business can relate to is the enormous amount of price risk that they have to take on between The time that they procure the fertilizers and the time that they sell the fertilizers, more so than in other commodity markets, such as grains, for example. What we have tried to do is develop a market that's maybe a little bit, I guess, better in a sense than just plain futures and introduce options to the market. And it's very interesting because it's, again, this asymmetric risk payoff where you're paying a premium to have some type of price protection. And that's very interesting because it's never been done before. And I think compared to the total margin that some of these firms are trying to target, it it makes complete sense to use options. So that's really wherever you are, whether you're the producer, the distributor, wholesaler, the retailer, or even the farmer, I think options make a lot of sense, especially considering the. Seasonality of fertilizers, right? You only put fertilizers down once, maybe twice a year. You're not consuming them every single day. Options, I think, work in that type of seasonality commodity market.
0: You can't see it because this is a podcast, but Taylor gets this just twinkle in his eye every time he gets to talk about fertilizer options. It's really great. So if you're going to be in denver in a couple weeks time make sure that you get them talking about it it's a good time promise you'll thank me later all right taylor well i think that's it for us this week thank you so much for joining us and we hope that you will join us soon to give us an update on the fertilizer market
4: absolutely thank you so
2: much for having me
0: all right, Carrie. Good to have you back. How was Athens?
2: It was excellent. Very, very warm crowd. Great food and uh, very warm climate. I have to say, it was about thirty-six degrees or so when we were down there. Excellent trip, as was New York the week before to host both our U.S. offsite and our excellent uh, U.S. Spring Outlook event.
0: That explains the uh, the bit of jet lag <laughs> that you must be experiencing. <laughs> exactly.
2: Exactly. I just wish I came back with better news, or at least on a less bearish note, Oh would no. say. Signs continue to look negative, particularly for the big ships right now. In macro news, the situation when we look at the Chinese steel demand, which to be fair, we here at FIS have been arguing all year will be weaker than expected, is looking notably worse for the second half. Just at the end of last week, the China Iron and Steel Association, together with four of the leading mills of the country, including Baosteel and Ansteel, the two largest, issued a dire profit warning stating that we have already seen the peak demand in China for steel this year. Demand appears to be weakening and saying that the mills are already operating essentially on razor thin profits if seeing any profit at all. Even the services sector is not looking that fantastic, with Caixin reporting that their measure of China's services PMI dropped from 53.9 in June to 57.1 in May. Even if we assume the Chinese mills are, let's say, exaggerating the situation a little bit in order to attract some more government stimulus, the signals just don't look that good for the case.
0: We had near-record Q2 iron ore exports from Brazil What's going on in that area?
2: I mean, That is true. Vale reported, in fact, uh, absolutely outstanding results, the highest since before the Brumadinho Dam disaster in 2019. So the problem is that it's highly improbable that second half demand for iron ore could possibly match uh. that first half demand. And I think that's the issue here. That's the issue certainly that Cape traders have understood and rates spent much of the last week once again grinding lower with the Baltic 5TC average falling 19% to 12234 today, that's Wednesday, with both C5 and C3 falling and TA business being particularly hit. The futures have not looked much better, although I do have to say they've been grinding down at a slightly slower pace. We have slight bounce today, seeing the front month CAPE 5TC contract marked right now at 14375 value on FIS Live. That's down $1,300 on the week with Q4 down about the same level on the week, trading 15.475 today. I think it's also worth noting that the technicals on the capes do not seem to suggest a reversal just yet despite that slight bounce today i can see those bollinger bands widening which to me suggests more potential to fall yet and i would refer listeners to our technical guru ed hutton who by the way is going to be on the podcast next week exactly so perfect timing right (laughs) but his reports also suggest i believe a little bit of room for a further fall here after this current dead cat bounce
0: Wow, you must not be ship owner's favorite person right now.
2: You know, I I, I think I might have shocked the audience with my bearishness of touch <laughs> at, at the event last week, yeah. I mean, Panamax is unfortunately faring little better at all with the supply of tonnage in both basins seemingly offsetting any growth that we're seeing in that cargo demand for the moment. In the Atlantic, a busy start to this week in fixing terms has not translated into any rise in rates, with both TA and front haul grinding lower by about 700 bucks per day during the last week. Sluggish demand in the south has meant that that P6 Brazil-Asia grain round voyage has continued to fall as well. In the east, despite an uptick in no-back demand, rates have continued to slide, while out of Australia, it's uh, some demand for minerals cargo, but very, very wide bid-offer spread seem to be preventing too much fixing there. On the paper, we did see a bounce today on the front-month Panamax 4TC contract that offered some glimmer of a floor, and indeed, the August contract now marked at $9,300 on FIS Live. That's against $9,400 last Wednesday, so almost flat. The Q4 has bounced as well, but remains a little bit further down on the week, about $400 down on the week, marked currently $10,300.
0: A lot of information to take in there, Kerry.
2: It, it is indeed. It is indeed. And a lot happening, particularly in the Chinese steel industry. So I'll let my colleagues on the uh, iron ore side speak to that. And now for
0: your steel update with Joshua Stearns. Hey, Josh. Nice to have you back. How are you doing?
3: Yeah. Hi, Fernanda. Thanks. Yeah. Another great day here in uh, Copenhagen.
0: (laughs) Lovely. So what's going on with steel?
3: Steel has been pretty busy, actually, over the last week and a half here. There have been quite a few, well, I would say events out in the market that really kind of scared people. So there were some issues and some flooding out in Germany, out at the Salzgitter plant, which kind of originally was yeah, it really kind of spurred some interest there in the EU HRC contract. And we've been trading at very low prices over the last couple of months, so it kind of scared the market and drove prices up a bit. Then a few days later you started to hear that it was really none of their rolling mills that or just the rolling mills that were affected. So the HRC price kind of has come down a tad, but it's still higher than it was a couple of weeks back. The index jumped up about by about thirteen bucks yesterday. So there was definitely some room there for for positivity, definitely with a, with air on the side of a bit of caution there. Uh, there doesn't seem to be that much actual physical demand at the time being as well. It's an odd situation out there. There is, you know, people are thinking that there is basically less supply out there, but you've got uh, Gijon and you've got Dunker coming on. So this is going to add supply back into the market. And again, I think that it was just a little bit overdone there with the Sardskidder news initially. But in retrospect, uh, that's kind of what's been happening here over the last couple of days. In regards to that, actually I kind of wanted to go back to my to my positioning report, so or my speculative positioning report, as I have noticed a kind of a further reduction of shorts in the UHRC market, which has been then supported by obviously the price increasing and such. So I think you're also kind of starting to see the fund community who probably reacted as well to that news um and to that kind of event driven strategy there to enter back into the market. We're about a thousand short positions down from about a month. Yeah, from about May this year. So you know, we were at about a thousand sh- or fifteen hundred shorts. We're now at about five hundred short positions out there in uh, the UHRC market.
0: That's a pretty sharp change there.
3: Yeah, you know, that's kind of where what I'm estimating. So net, they are still short, but that net short is starting to see an unwind again over the last month. You are really two months almost now. You know, you've really kind of started to see a uh, yeah a further unwind of the short positions in the UHRC market. So. There has been much talk about EUHRC HRC kind of being at its low anyways right now, you know, anywhere around these kind of low 600s, high 600s, people are starting to get a little bit more confident buying there. You know, it will all really kind of yeah, become a little bit more clear in the upcoming weeks as we start to see what kind of demand actually starts to come in, in the okay. kind of the later stages of this month and of, of this quarter here.
0: All right, Josh, what about scrap? We haven't heard about scrap in a long time. How's it doing?
3: Yeah. Scrap's also been interesting. It was very much range-bound over the last couple of months. Anything up in the high 380s, really 390s, and if you got anywhere near 400, people were starting to sell, and they would kind of buy that back around 365, 370s. Really, the 370s were kind of a buy zone then. What you've kind of seen over the last couple of weeks is you've really started to see prices actually come down quite hard, and you know the market is pretty convinced actually that this kind of 380ish mark is really kind of where fair value is for the scrap prices. So scrap prices are, yeah, a bit, they're a bit depressed at the moment. Rebar prices are on their way down out in uh, in Turkey as well. There have been, a, it was down a dollar last night on scrap prices. I think it was four and a half dollars on rebar, almost five. But in general, there is a bit of pressure, but there isn't a lot of volatility right now in scrap. So it's not really moving heavily in the derivative market. We're about six bucks wide bid offer at yeah, the bid-ask spread. So scrap is one of those where you're also kind of starting to see a little bit of, I would say, kind of physical interest coming in, in particular, kind of towards the back end of this year, early part of next year, where you are starting to see some EAFs come in and take advantage of, of basically pretty low priced scrap at the moment and wanting to lock in that price and lock in that lock in their purchase costs for uh, the early parts of next year and the very, very late end of this year. So I do think there is, you're starting to see a little bit more um, interest in scrap, there is going to be, uh, I don't think there's going to be a ton of movement either way. Very, very much so. It kind of looks like it's in a uh, in its fair value zone here, to, to say the least. So
0: Fantastic. So a lot going on with the EU HRC, US HRC, and the physical side of scrap, Josh. We'll have to keep an eye out on those. Hopefully you're back next week to give us an update on how things settled after the flooding.
3: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, this was also an interesting week. Obviously, with uh, the Fourth of July, markets were pretty tame. Is it because um, you were partying, market. Josh? Yeah, you know, I was partying. No, I, <laughs> that uh,
0: contributed to the to the lull in the market.
3: <laughs> no, it, with the Fourth of July, the entire United States was out, so there wasn't exactly a ton of liquidity out in the U.S. H.R.C. markets, and other participants were a bit wary of this lack of liquidity on the day. So. People were a bit cautious yesterday. Nobody was really going to be moving or showing prices very aggressively. Big CRU release date today. Again, first release of the month. So always gives us kind of an idea of where, yeah, where this front month July contract is actually gonna be settling against on a month-to-date average. So very important release today. We'll see what happens.
0: We'll be waiting with bated breath for your update, Josh. Thank you so much.
3: Wonderful, thank you guys.
0: Now for Iron Ore with James Robinson. We are in the studio with DJ Jazzy James. Hey James, how you doing?
5: I'm very good. Thank you for having me.
0: We have a lot to pick your brain on, namely, tension. Everyone's talking about it. What's going on?
5: Yeah, so uh, first thing to note is that China is extremely hot at the moment. The country is going through a very extensive heat wave. Beijing the other day clocked the highest June temperatures on record, and this has sparked some concerns over pollution. So... Effectively, the Tangshan production curb is going to come in as a means of limiting pollution, which some listeners may remember is a similar measure that we saw in the run-up to the Winter Olympics a few Mm. years ago.
0: You did speak on that a few episodes ago, yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah, foreshadowing. Um, Oh no. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah, effectively the policy is going to be based on emissions, so effectively steel mills are going to be graded in terms of their efficiency effectively so their emissions output and the production quota is going to be dependent on that. So cleaner mills will be cutting production by up to 30%. Those are
0: the grade A mills, right?
5: Effectively, yeah. So so the more efficient steel mills in the area and then that goes up to 50% for some of the dirtier mills. So some of the highest polluters will be cutting cutting production by as much as half.
0: Wow, that's significant.
5: Pretty pretty significant. That's
0: steep, yeah.
5: From a Ferris perspective, you know, as we cut supply of steel, we could see a little bit of price support on finished steel products. But whether that is enough to offset the slowdown in demand is pretty heavily debated at this point.
0: And you have a bit of a theory about what's going on would you care to share that with our audience
5: yeah the timing does seem a little bit coincidental so towards the tail end of last week we saw a delegation of industry representatives really sounding the alarm bells on both the steel production side of things and the wider industrial economy so this delegation which included Baowu, which is the largest steel producer in china they stated to put it mildly that they were not optimistic heading into the second half of this year so mill margins at the moment are still you know if not negative then still pretty close to flat so any sort of reduction in steel production which may give a bit of price support on the finished steel side of things may give a little bit more support to those steel mills themselves.
0: So this will have a huge impact on a number of things, but namely the property market, right?
5: Yeah, it's more bad news for the property market, I'm afraid. Last week, Vanke, China's lar- second largest property developer, stated that the property market was actually worse than initially expected. And Goldman Sachs are now forecasting higher default rates. So their initial estimate was 28%, which they lowered towards the front end of this year to 19. And they have just recently put it back up to 28%. So a pretty bleak picture merging all across the Ferris supply chain, really.
0: Do you have any good news for us this week?
5: So there is one silver lining, and that is that steel exports are really surging. So for the first five months of 2023, exports are up 41% compared to 2022. In May, that figure printed at 8.4 million tonnes, which is the highest volume seen since 2016. So yeah, a real, real tick upwards on the international market. That has largely been driven by a depreciating yen, so RMB is down, I think it was 5% on the year. A major driver of that was that, was the depreciation in currency. So RMB is down approximately 6% on the year, which makes for cheaper imports for foreign countries buying Chinese steel. A good way to sort of think about steel exports is it can be treated as a bit of a release valve. So if there's excess stock in the Chinese economy that can't be sold domestically, then it's very easy to sort of flog it on the international market. You might remember that a couple of years ago, I believe it was 2016 actually, the last level that we saw that level of exports. That was when we had a real backlash from the United States and other Western countries regarding steel dumping. So, that may just be something to look out for going forward.
0: Fantastic. I'm just glad that we can end this segment on a high note. To an
5: extent, yeah. So, the majority of this week, despite this onslaught of bad news coming out of the Chinese economy, iron ore has been trading pretty remarkably flat, actually. So, we've been trading around the 109 level pretty much all week. Well, there
0: goes that high note.
5: Yeah, Yeah. but... uh, yeah, we've been we've been trading pretty much exactly the same level around 109 for the majority of this week. Except this afternoon where we pushed past the 110 mark to close at 11010 and the general sentiment within the market is is some real skepticism about why this level is holding. So, you know, I don't think that the stimulus prospect that buoyed the market over the course of last month. I don't think that that is as strong as it was last month. I think The fact that we haven't seen any stimulus of note, and I can't really bring myself to talk about it anymore, (laughs) to be totally honest. But yeah, the lack of materialization on that front, I think has depressed that sentiment a certain amount. So yeah, there is a, shall we say, skeptical mood and a slightly puzzled mood within the market as to why we are holding these levels.
0: Thought we said we weren't going to say the S word anymore.
5: Yeah, been trying to (laughs) avoid it to be tightly honest for the for the benefit of my mental health but uh yeah hoping to go on a bit of a detox for a week or two
0: well we'll see if james is able to uh, complete his detox on next week's episode thank you so much for joining us james robinson thank
5: you very much thanks yeah. for
0: having me let's dig into the ferris complex with hey, Howe, how hey hey how how are you doing
6: Hi, Fernanda. I'm good. I'm doing well.
0: We haven't heard from you for a while, and I know the listeners have definitely been missing you. What can you tell us about Tangshan?
6: Well, the, the, I think the reason why we're so curious and so interested in that city is the city is named as the steel city in China. It's very similar like Pittsburgh in U.S., so Tangshan manufactured 70% of uh, finished the steel and almost uh, 9% of uh, the half finished steels in China. So production curve coming late last week. So market is very interested in how the curve impact on this place.
0: Let's talk about those production cuts, shall we? Because I understand that air quality has worsened since the pandemic. So, can you walk us through that a bit? How?
6: Let's review what happened in Shan. Well, uh, they have a scoring system which was relevant to emission pollution. So that normally happened in late autumn to winter, so which is from October to the January in the coming year. But it's very rarely to happen in June and July, which is a high temperature and rainy season. Theoretically. So that's a little bit unexpected to the market. So um, uh, let's go back to the scoring system. So there is a couple of scores uh, with grade A. Uh, Meals with grade A needs to cut capacity by 30%. Well, all meals with grade B and lower are required to cut 50%, so that's a lot. However, market participants indicated that they have sentient ore's usable days at over 20 days, so which could neutralize the impact of the curve. So in general, I think the curve shouldn't impact on the finished steel's flows in, in the market finally, which means we still have enough crude steels, but the curve should have a strong impact on the iron ore market because market needs less iron ore in July and it's a certain thing. I mean, in more detail, the curb roughly reduced 30,000 tons of pig iron per day, or 1.2% of the total market. However, some of the mills mentioned that this impact could grow even bigger as more mills is starting to initiate maintenance in July.
0: Those are some very heavy numbers, but in spite of this, it doesn't look like iron ore futures are losing any steam. In fact, they'd lost about 4% over the last three trading sessions, but it looks like they're gaining now. So my question is, is this kind of shrugging off sustainable?
6: An early cash out effect in iron ore products. Because iron ore is is a very sensitive product. It's like, Copper, it has linkage to all of the events. I'm, what we are just saying is one side, a few factors from fundamentals. It could be fundamentals creating some various factors, but doesn't have to say that create a final hit to the iron market and lead to market, drag the market down. But on a lot of uh, other facts like macro side, like, for example, the housing support, stimulus, and some other factors are supporting iron ore that can be uh, neutralizing the, the bearish sentiment from the market. I think that's why iron ore didn't react to the production curve, or it's actually react to the curve for some of the sessions and then buying back. So <laughs> I think that's a miracle of, that's the mysterious of the product itself. And it's also why it's tracking investors. It's not falling one, uh, it can pull in multiple factors.
0: That's what keeps you interested in the Ferris complex, huh? How it's the it's it's mysterious, it's mystique, huh?
6: Yeah, that's interesting. We actually, I'm thinking to create one of the uh, one of the chart which is relevant to timelines to see how much times Iron ore could follow the fundamental um, factors. Like for example, let's say there's like twelve months of a year. So if I get a consequence that iron ore follow only only three out of twelve months, iron ore is falling. The fundamental factors, then we don't have to do the research. If there is like nine, we are happy. We are we are we we, we are emotional support. If there like a ten or eleven, definitely we have to do it. (laughs) 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 That'll be interesting, right?
0: (laughs) Well, we all appreciate your research, Hal.
6: Yeah, no worries. I think that's why a product's been very uh, liquid and popular is because a lot of investors, they're thinking different angles. They're trading back on different rationales. That's why keep it very liquid, popular and usable to the spark.
0: (laughs) So going back to last week, we saw a jump on steel margins in China. How is that going to be affected by these curbs?
6: First of all, I think the curve has a very limited support to the steel margin, because in the broad picture, the broad strategy for Chinese steel mills in 2023 was to run it into a very thin margin and keep all the orders finished. So in this circumstance, like, even we saw the virtual steel margin rebounded from 256 yuan to 304 yuan, which was 13% of the growth. However, the number was stuck in 250 to 270-ish level for five and six weeks previously. So uh, I, I think, I personally don't think it's sustainable because the first of all the mills were running the theme margin strategies and the other side of the story is with the mills trying to buy more expensive ores in the coast. So we've we'll probably seen the margin with back in the coming two and three weeks. And more in addition, I think the heavy rains and high temperature along with the traditional light season will limit the materials consumption. I mean the finished steel's consumption. We saw a five typical steel consumption drop deeply from 9.66 million tons to 9 million tons over last week, the, fast, uh, the fat, most fast drop in the year. And I think low steel sales expectations would push meals tend to sacrifice margin to keep finish uh, their orders. So in general, I think, the and, and, and moreover, sorry, moreover, the fast depreciated Chinese yuan during the past three months would make more import cargoes like, uh, would make import cargoes like prime coals and the iron ore more expensive. So all these factors will tend to squeeze the fuel margin back to a low area. So I don't think, so finally, I don't think this is, this uh, it could be sustainable.
0: All right, there you have it folks. Wise words from one of the top researchers of the Ferris Complex, Hal Pei. Thank you so much for joining us, Hal.
6: Thank you, Fernanda.
0: Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. But we have a quick favor to ask. If you could please jump on FreightUpPodcast.com and leave us a review or a comment to give us an idea of what you're enjoying in the show your feedback means so much to us. We really value it and want to make this show work for you. So please take a second and go to FreightUpPodcast.com to leave us a review. Thanks, and we'll catch you next week on the next episode of Frayed Up. Freight up!